0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: The key to the whole game of Wall Street and the Gods of Money is debt slavery. The key to the whole game. The thing that Reaganomics said is irrelevant is the central point about the whole game of bankers since the creation of Babylonian banking. It's debt. Debt. Slavery.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, William Engdahl. Today's show, The Gods of Money, How America Was Hijacked. William Engdahl is an international political analyst and author. He is currently visiting professor of geopolitics at Northwest University, Xi'an, China, Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics and the New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, the Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. His latest book is The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam. Today, we discuss his book, The Gods of Money Wall Street and the Death of the American Century. William Engdahl, good to talk to you again.
1: Good to be with you again, Bonnie.
0: In your introduction to Gods of Money Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, you write that this book is not a conventional account of money, banking, or economics, but rather a history of power. A History of the Colossal Abuse of Power in the Hands of the Gods of Money. Who and what are you referring to as the gods of money?
1: What I refer to and what I trace out in the book from the earliest beginnings, in in, in fact, with the uh, Alexandria Hamilton First National Bank of the United States, which wasn't a national bank but was a Rothschild bank, Uh, What I trace out is the gods of money are the international bankers that buy and sell nations. They finance wars like the Napoleonic Wars, the uh, the War of 1812 against the United States when the U.S. was abandoning the Rothschild Bank of the United States. And uh, these so called gods of money see themselves as above nations, above people, uh, literally as gods. And there's an expression by Henry Kissinger back in the 1970s when he was at the zenith of his power. He said, if you control the oil, you control nations or groups of nations. If you control the food, you control the people. If you control the money, you control the entire world. And that, in essence, is the agenda of the gods of money, what I call the gods of money. That's with a small g, by the way.
0: You write that money is nothing more and nothing less than a political creation, a promise to pay backed up by the government and its military power. And obviously also it's the government's ability to tax that gives it such enormous power. But If the government is what backs up the value of money, then how is it that banking is in private hands?
1: Well, that's that's the great mystery of the last, I would say, 500 years of Western civilization. Uh, When the city of London began to rise in the 1690s with the Bank of England and so forth, these were private merchant bankers creating a bank called the Bank of England. And they lent to the crown to finance wars against France, against uh, whoever. And uh, because the crown did not understand the power of money, they didn't, most governments, including the the communist governments, Karl Marx, years ago I studied when I was in Sweden, I studied Das Kapital and Karl Marx and Karl Marx never understood the fundamentals or didn't want to understand of central banking and the creation of money. And this is kind of the secret of secrets, the inner sanctum of of power that, that we never seem to get our hands around. There are a bunch of gangsters and crooks called the Gods of Money or the Banks of Wall Street. There are only about seven of them, really. There's Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, four or five others, J.P. Morgan Chase and so on. And they have systematically, over the course of the period since World War II, step by step created a silent coup d'etat taking over every institution of influence in the American body politic. They've ripped up the Constitution. They've financed wars, the wars in the Middle East and so forth. They stand behind the military-industrial complex that is booming these days because of all the wars. And uh, They control the Federal Reserve. They created the Federal Reserve. You know, many people have the illusion or the wrong information that the Federal Reserve is a solemn U.S. government institution. It's nothing of the sort. It's a private central bank controlled by private capital, controlled by J.P. Morgan Chase, by... uh, AIG at times and so forth. And its stock is owned privately, the Central Bank, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, being the most powerful of the various reserve banks. So if you can control the power of money, the the Constitution of the United States is a fairly decent document as, as these things go. And the founding fathers gave the power to print and coin money to the Congress of the United States. Well, in December of 1913, in a coup d'etat, J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller, Citigroup and and J.P. Morgan Bank, with Woodrow Wilson as their hired hand, their, their paid gun, created the Federal Reserve Act that took that power away from the elected U.S. Congress and put it in the hands of the private bankers, the international bankers of Wall Street. And those are who I refer to as the gods of money with the small g, because they see themselves as gods. Maybe maybe the title, if I were to rewrite the book today, I would probably change the title because it gives them too much uh, respect, because there are no gods. They're, they're, They're pathological. Uh, If you look at people like David Rockefeller or uh, the chairman of of Goldman Sachs or uh, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase, these, these are psychopaths. These are people without any emotions whatsoever.
0: At the beginning of our interview, you mentioned the War of 1812 against the United States when the U.S. was abandoning the Rothschild Bank of the United States. Were you referring to the first bank of the United States set up by Alexander Hamilton? And what did the War of 1812 have to do with the abandonment of this national bank?
1: This is one of the most fascinating uh... Stories of, of the the power of money and, and war and so forth in American history. I think in 1791, uh, when the nation was just being founded, Alexander Hamilton, who was a British monarchist till his dying days, uh, had the trust of President Washington, and he wrote a proposal for creating a Bank of the United States. Now, most historians, the shocking thing is I delved into this when I was researching the book several years ago, most historians, American historians, think this was a national bank, a bank of the United States. It in no way was. Uh, the details of the charter of the Bank of the United States that Hamilton set up in 1791 called for of the stock to be held by private interests, including foreign private interests, if they so choose, and only 20% was in US government control. So it wasn't at all a bank of the United States. It was a bank in the United States, controlled, and as it turned out, controlled by the city of London, which was the the dominant financial power uh, back in 1791 by, by far. And the dominant financial power in the city of London was the House of Rothschild, Barings and a few other banks. So, the charter for the Bank of the United States, by the way, there was bitter political opposition when the Hamilton proposal was presented to Congress, uh, led by Thomas Jefferson, who I have to say history has treated him, to my mind, a little bit unfairly. Thomas Jefferson said, uh, A Bank of the United States should be in the hands of the government as the framers of the Constitution intended it to be, and not in private interest hands. Well, Congress passed it, and it was a 20 year charter. In 1811, the charter came up for renewal, and because of the performance, the track record of the Bank of the United States for the economy, which wasn't that great, the Congress voted not to renew it. One year later, in 1812, the British made several economic and financial provocations against the United States, and President James Madison went to the Congress and asked for a declaration of war against England for these uh, affronts which Congress granted, and that became the so-called War of 1812. But in fact, it was provocations that were instigated by the city of London, by N.M. Rothschilds, Nathan Rothschilds Bank, and uh, Baring's Bank, and a few others. At that time, the British were involved in the Napoleonic Wars on the continent. Perhaps the calculation was they could settle some scores with England regarding Canada. I don't know. This is only speculation. but. At that point, Madison was not in favor of the recharter of the Bank of the United States. He agreed with Thomas Jefferson that the bank was a a private entity that was not good for the national economy. But the war, the British, the famous story of the British Navy bombing Washington and the Battle of New Orleans, Indian Wars up in the, American-Canadian border and so forth, it went on for two or three years. And as a result of the war, the American government had a 300% increase in its federal debt. And at that point, in 1816, the New York bankers stepped in and persuaded Congress and persuaded Madison to change his view and create a second bank of the United States The same program, 80% of the shares were held by private interests, including the City of London banks. And Nicholas Biddle, a personal friend of Nathan Rothschild in London, became the governor of the Second National Bank. They controlled all government debt of Washington. All of the tax revenues of Washington were on deposit in Philadelphia at the Second Bank of the United States so it was literally a coup d'etat by these these private bankers using the war and the war debts and the inability to finance uh, the war to convince madison to change his view and support the new bank of the united states a very tragic development by the way
0: i'm speaking with scholar and author william engdahl today's show the gods of money how america was hijacked I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In 1832, President Andrew Jackson vetoed the renewal of the Second Bank of the United States, but the private bankers fought back. I understand that there was even an unsuccessful assassination attempt on Jackson. What happened there?
1: The renewal of the Charter, uh, it hadn't yet expired, but Andrew Jackson was a, a fierce foe of the New York banks and the bankers that owned the bank, Second Bank of the United States, Philadelphia, Nicholas Biddle and so forth. He blamed them for a nationwide agricultural depression in the western states and the Midwest and so forth, correctly, and he said The Bank of the United States, where the U.S. government does its business, should not be controlled by foreign banks. So, he, in 1832, he vetoed an early attempt by supporters of the bank to renew the charter a couple of years before it was due. As a result, Nicholas Biddle, in cahoots with Nathan Rothschild, his good friend in London, and James Rothschild in Paris, created the depression of 1837, in order to punish or to force uh, the Congress to change their mind. The Bank of England was involved, this has been well documented in my book, The Gods of Money, uh, to try to force the United States and the President uh, into renewal of the Charter. It failed. And from that point, 1837. Until 1913, when the same Wall Street banks with the City of London backing, made a coup d'etat called the Federal Reserve Act with Woodrow Wilson, there was no privately owned central bank of the United States.
0: President Abraham Lincoln had the U.S. Treasury issue legal tender notes, or greenbacks, to finance the Civil War rather than borrow from private bankers in New York and London at outrageous interest rates. Yeah. Lincoln was assassinated a few days after the end of the Civil War. What do we now know about his assassin, John Wilkes Booth? And did Lincoln's murder have anything to do with banking?
1: Oh, it had very, very much to do with banking. And the decision by Lincoln and his Treasury Secretary to issue greenbacks government printed money that were backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. Had the United States lost the Civil War, of course, the holders of those greenbacks uh, would have held green paper, but uh, that wasn't to be. And the London banks were furious with Lincoln because he was able to finance the Civil War without reliance on private banks in London and Wall Street. The private banks wanted to charge 24, in some cases, 36% interest to make loans to the U.S. government. And Lincoln's greenbacks, the so-called free legal tender notes, backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, totally destroyed those plans. So five days after the surrender at uh, Apatomax by General Lee of the Confederacy, Lincoln was assassinated by a third-grade actor named John Wilkes Booth. And here, the interesting point is, like Lee Harvey Oswald in the Kennedy assassination, the Congress and the Attorney General and the relative authorities immediately sent. It's a lone assassin. We don't need to investigate. Well, had they investigated, they would have found out that Wilkes Booth was lured by Judah Benjamin, the treasurer of the Confederacy, uh, to murder Lincoln. And the details of this are very, very convincing, of course, like with the uh, Lee Harvey Oswald Kennedy assassination. Uh, we may never get the you know the direct fingerprints on the, on the gun, but Wilkes Booth and Judah Benjamin were acquainted. Benjamin was very close to British Prime Minister Disraeli, and to Nathan Rothschild in the city of London, who was a sponsor of Disraeli. And immediately when Lincoln was assassinated, Judah Benjamin fled to London, the only leading member of the Confederacy government, never to return to the United States. And there were various reasons why the City of London would want Lincoln assassinated. Number one was the greenbacks, because Lincoln had discovered a way of uh, outflanking the private banks and financing the infrastructure and redevelopment projects of the U.S. government by direct issue of interest-free money, the greenbacks. And Lincoln's post-war plans for the South were a very mild reconstruction that would allow the economy of the South to return to agriculture production. And at that point, the City of London banks were the leading grain traders and cotton traders of the world. And the last thing they wanted was to have the southern states of the United States to come back on the market at that point because the price of cotton would collapse and their profits with it. The other thing is Lincoln opposed to bring the United States back onto the London gold standard. And the gold standard in those days was controlled by the banks of the city of London. So they used that to control the world economy, much like the price of oil after 1973 and the The Federal Reserve controlled the world economy through that. So London's wish was for a brutal reconstruction in the South with carpetbaggers and all of this, and disruption of the agriculture production, so the grain and cotton prices would go up. And in 1934, interesting enough, a Canadian attorney named Gerald McGeer was Given confidential information by someone who had the documents that John Wilkes Booth was a mercenary paid by the international bankers. And in 1875, Congress repealed the uh, issue of greenbacks, called them back in, and declared the Specie Resumption Act of a return to the British gold standard. So it was a victory for the city of London and a loss for the United States, by the way.
0: In your chapter, JFK Outfoxes the Fed, you note that President John Kennedy was concerned with getting the economy out of a seven-year recession. You write that, quote, five months before his assassination, By what was decades later revealed to have been a CIA hit team, Kennedy issued an all but unknown proclamation which may have cost him his life. What proclamation were you referring to?
1: He had the U.S. Treasury print United States government silver certificates, money backed not by the private banking interests of the Federal Reserve, look at your dollar bill today, and it says Federal Reserve note. The Federal Reserve is a private bank. It's owned by private bankers. Look at the stock ownership of the New York Federal Reserve, the most important of those, and you'll see what I'm saying. This is one of the great mythologies of American history is that the Federal Reserve has something to do with control by Washington and the United States government. That control was given up in December of 1913 when Woodrow Wilson, in an act of, I would call it treason against the United States, signed the Federal Reserve Act to uh, appease his banker friends uh, who financed his presidential campaigns. So. I think that was not the only reason for the Kennedy assassination. I think, in general, the vested interests, the oligarchy, and Kennedy was no uh, stranger to the oligarchy. His father was one of them uh, as ambassador to the court of St. James in London. But uh, Kennedy had his own agenda, and it was an interesting agenda. It was an agenda that called for detente with Russia. He was terrified, personally, according to all accounts I've seen privately, by the closeness with which the United States and the Soviet Union came to a mutual nuclear annihilation during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a crisis that was engineered by Alan Dulles and the CIA behind Kennedy's back, and. One of the reasons I think Kennedy was assassinated is that Allen Dulles, as head of the CIA, never forgave John F. Kennedy for kicking him out of the CIA. Uh, Kennedy actually had plans, he had been re-elected, to abolish the CIA, which would have been one of the more positive things for American post-World War II history. The CIA today is one of the most destructive institutions in the American political matrix. It's a, it's a rogue institution. There is nothing legitimate about the, the mission it has. It's completely out of control of Congress or any elected official. And it has a dark agenda. And I think the dark agenda uh, really became extreme under the leadership of George Herbert Walker Bush, Sr., 1976 when he was made uh, Director of Intelligence at the CIA and from that a takeover of American political institutions by the CIA began to become high priority financed by drug monies from Colombia by uh, Vietnam uh, male tribesmen heroin uh, finances and so forth from the Vietnam War so that uh, was another factor. And I think there was a consensus among various factions. Kennedy was also about to de-escalate, by all accounts uh, of people close to him. He was about to pull CIA advisors out of Vietnam and write it off as a, as a bad idea to try to support this corrupt uh, uh, dictatorship in, in South Vietnam against the communist north. And uh, the military industrial complex was not at all happy about that because they wanted a splendid little war to jack up their their military spending budgets from Congress, and that became the Vietnam War. Lyndon Johnson hated the Kennedy brothers. Uh, There was bad blood between the both of them, but it was a political marriage of convenience, that he become Vice President and bring the Southern states in to uh, help the election of Kennedy in, in 1960. So evidence is that Lyndon B. Johnson was in on the plot, that he, uh, his former mistress gave an interview to British television decades later telling her account of what he told her. So. Once he was president, Lyndon Johnson took every order that the military gave about ramping up the war in Vietnam, and American history was changed for the worse with that, as as we all know. So there were many reasons, but one of them was, I think, Kennedy's inclination to look at the possibilities of going outside the Wall Street investment banks that control the marketing of u.s debt u.s government debt and looking at the possibilities of doing that directly interest free and creation of currency by the government that would have saved the united states of america and american taxpayers trillions by now trillions of dollars in taxes to simply pay the banks of wall street for managing the government debt
0: Were Kennedy's United States notes, rather than Federal Reserve notes, ever printed?
1: Yes, they were. And the first thing that Lyndon Johnson did when he became president was to close it down. (laughs) He did what he was told. Lyndon Johnson was not going to rock the boat of the establishment.
0: I'm speaking with scholar and author William Engdahl. Today's show, The Gods of Money. How America was hijacked. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You often quote Henry Kissinger's famous line, uh, which you've mentioned, that if you control the money, you control the entire world. How is it that control of the
1: currency
0: turns out to be the most powerful control, even more than oil and food?
1: Go back, Bonnie, to the Bretton Woods conference in 1944. That conference was run by the U.S. Treasury and the four or five international Wall Street banks, especially the Rockefeller uh, City Group. And what they arranged was that the entire free world monetary order of Bretton Woods. Would be oriented toward the US dollar. And the US dollar would be the only currency convertible for gold. The dollar was, quote, as good as gold. And at that time, the Federal Reserve held something like 70% of the monetary gold in the entire world. So they were sitting in hawk heaven, you know. There was no challenger on the face. Europe was a rubble heap after the war. Japan was in ashes, thermonuclear ashes, thanks to Harry Truman and and, uh, the Pentagon. China was undergoing an internal revolution. The Soviet Union was devastated, 27 or 29 million killed in order to win World War II for the United States, effectively. So. At that point, they created a system that was based on the dollar, and if the dollar is the reserve currency held by every other nation's central bank, then they have to finance everything, all their trade, their purchase of oil, their purchase of raw materials on the world market in dollars. So they have to come up with those dollars somewhere. And that creates a demand for dollars that allows the United States to run a balance of payments deficit since 1971, almost every single year, with the exception of one or two years during Clinton's uh, regime, when when the Social Security uh, baby boom spike created a little bit of a surplus. So, the dollar as reserve currency is one of two pillars, as I often write in my my articles and books, two pillars of American hegemony or American power. The second pillar is that the U.S. military shall be second to none in the world. So, those two, the dollar as reserve, what does that mean, dollar as reserve currency, if the U.S. runs a deficit? Well, China has a trade surplus. Germany has a trade surplus. What do they do with the surplus dollars? They buy U.S. Treasury bonds. What does that allow the U.S. government to do? Run a deficit without even blinking an eye so that the Chinese de facto are financing U.S. military operations that are against Chinese national interests, that are against German national interests in NATO and so forth. The coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014, a good example of that. German industry suffered grievously from that coup d'etat. But that is because the dollar is reserve currency, still to this day. Now, the euro, back in 2000 or so, when it 2002, when it became a functioning alternative currency, even though it had uh, grave flaws in its design. There was no political central government for the United States of Europe like in the U.S. Of but despite that, the euro was on its way to become an alternative to the dollar because at that point, George W. Bush was running, after the 2008 financial crisis, was running annual deficits of $1 trillion, $1.3 trillion it was just skyrocketing out of control the chinese said we are not at all amused by the level of indebtedness of the us government because our previous investments in us debt is becoming endangered if this continues and they started moving their surplus trade surplus into euros and at that point washington the us treasury Financial warfare unit and so forth reacted together with Wall Street with an attack on the weak link of the euro, namely the the Greek uh, debt, fraudulent Greek debt, which Goldman Sachs had arranged for the Greek government a few years before. So this is the kind of thing: if you can create money out of out of thin air, and everybody else is required to. Get that money, that U.S. dollar. Then you have a power that's is awesome.
0: Yes, it is ironic that, as you point out, it's the U.S. government's indebtedness because of the reserve currency status of the dollar. Other countries are having to finance the U.S. military to attack them.
1: Yeah, that's exactly how, how it how it uh, works oh. out and uh, only slowly are they beginning to realize this the chinese i think uh, began to realize this around uh, 6 or 7 years ago but they you know they had so much more than a trillion dollars invested in us treasury debt if they dump it all at once you know some people say oh dump it all at once you know bankrupt the us no it doesn't work that way if they do that then china will go through a horrendous financial crisis So they have to figure out some way. And what they're doing is buying gold, the same as the Russians. They're buying every bar of gold they can get their hands on in the market, the cheaper the better, but even if they pay a premium. And ultimately working toward creating a gold-backed renminbi or yuan as an alternative to the dollar, at a point where the dollar becomes recognized worldwide as a completely worthless paper currency
0: one thing that i never completely understood is why it is that the central banks of other countries use their surplus dollars to buy us treasury notes is there nowhere else for them to put put those dollars
1: not in in the dimensions for example china or before that in the 80s it was japan they had tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in trade surplus, mostly with the U.S. That was the diabolical thing. You know, you can buy Japanese cars in the U.S. They said, oh, come on in. We don't care about Detroit. You know, buy our cars because you'll finance our debt. And we can make wars and take over other countries and loot them. And, uh, you know, it works out okay. And that's kind of how it, how it worked. So... Uh, There are almost no alternatives. The euro was the most promising potential alternative back in uh, 2007, 2008. And money was going into the euro from Japan, from China, from Russia, from other countries to buy bonds of the European governments. And that's why the Greek crisis was triggered by the US Treasury financial warfare unit in in 2010 to stop the attraction of the euro as an alternative to the dollar and it pretty well succeeded short term
0: well is the wall street financial warfare against the eu against the uh, euro that is is that continuing today
1: sure sure i think uh, in effect What the Trump administration is doing is targeting the euro itself for demolition. And that will create quite a bit of disruption in the European economies, I can assure you. But they smell that this is the Achilles heel that to eliminate any potential future threat to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar They should just finish off this euro thing once and for all. You know, the Brexit began the tumbling of the dominoes called the eurozone. Believe me, I'm for stability and tranquility and all these things. The European Union is a Frankenstein monster. It has nothing to do with the original intent of Charles de Gaulle or Adenauer back in the 60s when they talked about a Europe of the fatherlands or national sovereignty would be the the foundation stone of, of cooperation agreements between the member nations, that time six or seven. Now it's become this undemocratic, unelected, faceless, supranational bureaucracy of de facto, let's call it what it is, fascists who want top-down control over every facet of life of citizens in the countries of the European Union. They want to dictate to countries such as Hungary or Germany or whoever, how many war refugees they must take and integrate into their economies? Well, what what is this all about? You know, who's causing the wars? It's NATO. Who's causing the Arab Spring? Who's causing this Syria thing? It's the United States, Pentagon. It's the CIA. It's the State Department. It's uh, Turkey, it's Qatar, it's Saudi Arabia. So why should Europe have to accept millions of war-crazed refugees, many of them terrorists? What is this? This isn't about humanitarianism. Never a country in the world opens its borders to anybody without questions asked. America never did that. You have to have certain criterion of who you want to be a citizen in your country, who you deem can assimilate into your culture, learn your language and so forth. But in Europe, Angela Merkel and the governments uh, in in Brussels have just opened the floodgates because certain interests like George Soros, the European Council on Foreign Relations and so forth, the Vatican, Pope Francis, they want to destroy national identity. And I think borders matter, I think national identity matters. And I think national currencies matter, not supranational things like the Euro or the Brussels Commission or the European Parliament that has no connection to voters.
0: How does the expansion and contraction of the money supply create booms and busts or what is called the business cycle how is the lending power of banks used to create deflationary recessions and depressions
1: if i flood the market with cheap money people uh, take that money and they buy houses they flip those houses the, the money keeps flowing so somebody buys the flipped house and the price goes up even more and there's no new value added to that physical piece of real estate but the market price is going up so as long as the capital flows it's uh, you know it's it's, uh, a party with a huge punch bowl but when somebody takes away the punch bowl the central bank and pulls back the money supply suddenly nobody can pay their debts because this is all based on debt The key to the whole game of Wall Street and the Gods of Money is debt slavery. The key to the whole game. The thing that Reaganomics said is irrelevant is the central point about the whole game of bankers since the creation of Babylonian banking. It's debt. Debt slavery.
0: I'm speaking with scholar and author William Engdahl today's show, The Gods of Money, How America Was Hijacked. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, how do banks flood the economy with money? Is it simply by making a lot of loans?
1: Yes. Well, it's called the fractional reserve banking system. You can make uh, loans against Capital of, uh, it's changed a little bit in recent years, but between 8% and 11%, you can multiply that manifold and uh, simply create money out of thin air, the banks. And then uh, the Federal Reserve is kind of the the governor or the policeman to keep that within certain bounds. But under Greenspan, those boundaries were, were more or less abolished. So The key to the thing, I think, was the decision of the US government to agree that Wall Street bankers, international bankers in Wall Street, JP Morgan, Citigroup, and so forth, would buy the debt of the United States and resell it. So private bankers would make the profit. And the Secretary of the US Treasury, around the time of President Lincoln suggested, well, if the U.S. Treasury created a fund of, I don't know, he said X hundred million dollars, but let's say a few billion dollars in today's money, and we use that as collateral to issue the debt of the United States directly to citizens, we don't need these private bankers to rake off 40, 30, 25 50% 50% profits on the backs of the U.S. taxpayer. Well, that got deep six by the power of J.P. Morgan and others. And they create banking panics to panic politicians to increase their control. It's very simple, really. If you control the money, you control the world. If you're dependent on money in your job, and I say, I cut you off, you don't get any money. What do you do? You're in a panic. Well, you do that with the whole nation through the money supply, the central money supply. That's why the gods of money created the Federal Reserve as a private instrument to control the money supply and take it away from the entity that the Constitution of the United States mandated it, namely the elected US Congress. So the fractional reserve banking system collapses periodically about every 10 years or so. And the same thing repeats itself, and the power of those banks increases and increases because they create money out of thin air. And that money is a promise to pay. Backed by what? Since 1971, August, the U.S. dollar is backed not by gold, no longer. It was backed by oil revenues after the 1973 oil shock, which Henry Kissinger managed to manipulate. And then in the present day, I would say the dollar is backed by nothing more than the power of Abrams tanks and F-16 fighter jets, raw military power on the rest of the world. And uh, you accept those promises to pay called U.S. Federal Reserve notes that are worthless pieces of paper. Look at the size of the federal debt of the United States government. What is it, $19 trillion today? What was it 10 years ago? What was it 20 years ago? Put that on a graph and look at at the uh, trend and you get an idea that something is really rotten in the state of the United States, and it's called debt.
0: The last chapter in Gods of Money deals with some of the similarities between America's current situation and that at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. For one thing, you mentioned that both empires relied on looting and plunder to sustain themselves. What are some of the other similarities?
1: Well, the indebtedness, the destruction of citizen farmers, the... Were forced to go to war to extend the Roman Empire to the borders of France and England and uh, Germany and so forth. And to loot that, to feed this parasitical class called the Roman Senators, the Roman patriarchy. And in, in Rome itself, it was just debauchery, corruption. You buy and sell senators and offices and so forth. It was a slave society. Uh, it wasn't always that way. At the time of Julius Caesar, it was quite other. But uh, step by step, the money interest took over and destroyed anything positive in, in uh, Rome. And that's very similar to what the banks have done over the past 40, 45 years to anything positive in the United States of America. Follow the, the sequel, 1999. The Bill Clinton administration abolishes the Great Depression laws called Glass-Steagall, which mandated a separation between investment banks that buy and sell stocks and bonds from commercial banks that finance corporations. And you had the growth of the power of the six or seven mega banks of Wall Street after 1999, and Bill Clinton's uh, great signing of that disgusting act, such that the balance sheets of those six or seven banks are larger than the gross domestic product of most of the nations of the world. This is crazy. You give so much power, and then they come up with this nonsense doctrine, too big to fail. I say they're too big to save. Let's Nationalize them, let's carve them up, chop them down to size, take away all their power so they can't buy and sell presidents, they can't buy and sell congressmen on the Banking Committee and other committees to extend their power. This goes back to Babylon, this is the power of money, this is the the power of debt slavery and the banks, that's what destroyed the British Empire, what destroyed the Dutch Empire, it's what destroyed Venice, and it's what's destroying, if we allow it, the United States of America. Simple as that. Look at the banks. Look at those bankers. Why aren't they in jail? Why isn't Jamie Dimon doing a stiff sentence in prison, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase? Why is he sitting there with a grin on his face today? Because we allow him to. We feel pathetic. We feel powerless. And these people have no power. They have only the power that we give them. So the empire of the United States and the empire of Rome are similar in so many ways. And the corruption in Rome and the corruption in Washington, I I won't begin to talk about it, but it's, it's so similar. Compare Washington of the 1950s or the early 1960s with Washington today with the kind of scandals you have, the sex scandals, the pederasty scandals, you, you name it, and the corruption scandals, uh, money under the table, and so forth. It's, it's Rome in the fourth century.
0: Well, then essentially, having a central bank underneath the U.S. Treasury and then having the government itself have the power to create credit that would be a better system, right?
1: Far better. Far better, but I would call it not a central bank, a national bank. A real national bank controlled by the nation with the electorate having the power to vote in or vote out presidents and, and uh, Congress who misuse the powers of that national bank. And that's what the founding fathers had intended with the Constitution. Woodrow Wilson signed that away in December 1913 because he was bought and paid for by J.P. Morgan and Company in Wall Street. It's simply time to take that power back for the American people in an intelligent way. Take those six or seven banks that are destroying the nation, nationalize them as a national security priority, not as some socialist thing like, like Henry Paulson claimed to us. A national security priority for the good of the nation, the survival of the nation, get rid of their toxic debt, put it into a a fish tank and sort it out over the course of the next 20 to 30 years what real estate is worth and what is not, and use the power of the state, the good power of the government to do something positive. I say the better thing is to use credit to create productive economic projects, like high-speed rail lines, like infrastructure. America has an $8 trillion estimated infrastructure deficit. Now we have the private power of robber banks. It's the robber barons all over again, destroying the nation and saying it's free enterprise. It's free for them. That's, I think, a good beginning. If, If I were president and wanted to drain the swamp, I would start with the seven banks of Wall Street.
0: In your book, Gods of Money, you quote Lloyd Blankfein, the chairman and CEO of the world's most profitable bank, Goldman Sachs, as having said in an interview that he was merely a banker doing God's work. What do you think he meant by that?
1: A banker doing God's work is uh, the gods of money. That's why I titled the book that. By the way,
0: William Engdahl, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. I I really enjoy talking with you about these various themes. It's it's very important, and uh, it's important that uh, more Americans have an idea of, of the actual history that has taken their country and our country to the point where it is today that it's uh, been hijacked by a bunch of criminals called bankers, the Wall Street bankers, and after the events of the crisis of 2008, instead of being put on trial as they were in countries like Iceland and put into prison for uh, crimes against the nation and crimes of criminal fraud, those bankers, like blank fine and, and Jamie Dimon and others uh, got increased bonuses they're they're sitting uh, as the gods of money and now under the Trump uh, presidency it looks like the security exchange commissioner is going to roll back even the modest uh, attempts to uh, rein in some of the abuses of the wall street banks that led to the 2007 2008 uh, meltdown and let them just have free reign. So if we want to be ruled by a bunch of psychopathic bankers, uh, we should know what we're saying yes to. That's, That's my view. That's why I wrote the book.
0: I've been speaking with William Engdahl. Today's show has been The Gods of Money, How America Was Hijacked. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. He is currently visiting professor of geopolitics at Northwest University, Xi'an, China. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics, and The New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, the Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. His book, Target China, How Washington and Wall Street Plan to Cage the Asian Dragon, has been a bestseller in Chinese. His latest book is The Lost Hegemon, whom the gods would destroy about the CIA and political Islam. Visit williamengdahl.com to sign up for a free bi-monthly geopolitical newsletter. That's William williamengdahl.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, Or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio.
2: revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall